You're listening to the Science Radio Cafe. I'm your host, Mary Charlotte. Today's program is about terrorism, and the subject of terrorism brings up a lot of different reactions in people. Fear and anger, of course, especially since the tools of terrorists right now are things like knives and cars, things that can't be controlled even by the most vigilant police force. Another common reaction on the topic of terrorism is political posturing, blustery rhetoric, cliches, meaningless statements like, they hate us for our freedom. What you don't really hear so much is rational analysis based in science. Who are these people who are committing these horrible crimes? Where did they come from? Why are they doing it? What drove them to the place where they would do something like that? Are they crazy? Are they sick? Are they criminals? Are they poor and desperate? Are they married with kids? What is the actual data on all of that? How is it being analyzed? How is it being used? And how can the tools of science be used to actually do something useful with respect to terrorism? Mark Sageman is a forensic psychiatrist, which I didn't even know was a profession until I read his recent book, Misunderstanding Terrorism. He also has a book that just came out. It's called Turning to Political Violence, The Emergence of Terrorism. It's a lot longer and goes into more historical examples of political violence, which is the term that he uses for what most of us call terrorism. And I just have to say, I think this is really important work because it examines these horrible actions that people do, the killing, the violence, from a systems perspective, the perspective of why it is happening, kind of like you might examine an epidemic or a famine with the underlying idea that if you understand something from a systems perspective, from a scientific perspective, you might actually be able to prevent it. Please note that there are two versions of today's program, a half-hour version for the radio and an unabridged version that's almost an hour long. They're both at scienceradiocafe.org. Let's go now to our conversation with Mark Sageman. Welcome to the Science Radio Cafe. Thank you. So at the beginning of this book, you talk about the challenges of studying terrorism as a social scientist because so much of the material is classified. You're one of relatively few people who's had access to both the tools of social science and real actual data. What are the advantages of studying terrorism from a social science perspective and the disadvantages of not doing so? Well, I previously wrote an article on the stagnation on terrorism research on just that issue. And tongue-in-cheek, I concluded that social scientists who try to understand things, they actually understood everything, but they knew nothing about terrorism because they didn't have the data. But government analysts who were not schooled in methodology knew everything but understood nothing. And so you really have to merge the two. This is very different from the 1950s in this country, for instance, when the government funded Russian uh, study centers at prestigious universities where a lot of academics could study Russia, basically, because the government did not have much more of an insight than the academics. And this really was a much richer environment where you had academics going in and out of government institutions like the Rand Institution, or even the national labs, there was much more of a back and forth. This is not the case in terrorism. And why is that? Is there, I mean, there's kind of an anti-intellectual phenomenon going on in society, or what's no, going th- on? No, this is just recent. <laughs> no, going back to 2001, I think the government decided to 
teach their analyst in-house. So basically, they took people that could pass a security clearance, a polygraph, namely people to me who have very little intellectual curiosity and have not done anything risky so that they could pass the clearances. So those people do not have the methodological background of graduate students uh, because they're mostly people who graduated from college, usually Midwestern school. They really did not have that much broader background that uh, people had in the 1950s to try to understand Russia. And so what happens when that intellectual curiosity, that intellectual background isn't there? What, what are you seeing? Groupthink. <laughs> Very simply, groupthink. They all think the same way. They all think that the heroes protecting society, they basically identify against terrorists. And so they are virtuous and terrorist evil. They want dimensional. And so there's this lack of understanding the enemy. We will talk about how people come to perpetrate acts of terrorism. You use the term political violence in your book. But let's first talk about some of the myths about why people go in that direction. You talk about a lot of them, like it turns out that people are not psychopaths, they're not brainwashed, and so on. Tell us about some of these myths and how they got there. Well, we've known from uh, social psychology that when people try to understand others who have done bad things, they tend to attribute the origin of those bad things to personal characteristics of those people. It's, it's what's called a fundamental error of attribution in psychology. And this is really uh, very much manifest in terrorism studies. So if they're bad, either they're criminal, at first, there were very few criminals or very few people who had a criminal background who became terrorists. This is kind of changing because any wave of protest degrades over time. So the original members of the, the wave of protest are usually intellectuals, graduate students, or people like that, the elite of the country. And as it catches on, the trendsetters move on to something else. And basically, the riffraff comes in. And that's very much what we have now in what I call the global neo-jihad. Mental illness, now you see a little bit more, but most terrorists are not mentally ill. They don't do this because they're sick. They do this for violence. Political violence is first and foremost political, and this is something that people have trouble understanding. They tend to you know, blame, say, well, who could do something like that? Therefore, they have to be mentally ill. And it turns out that terrorists are actually saner than the normal individual because they without anybody who they don't trust. Usually people who are mentally ill are not trusted by other people. So in collective violence, you have very few people who are mentally ill. But when you have the lone actors that we see now, many of them do have some mental illness. One of the things that you talk about is First of all, when somebody comes to believe in an ideology, there's a lot of people who use extremely violent language, but the gap between using violent language, which we see on the internet, and then actually perpetrating a violent act is a pretty big gap. And you also have this idea that people are coming to mostly men identify as soldiers, identify as kind of part of a select group of soldiers, of, of military people. But instead of like, I mean, if you join the military here in the United States or in any European country, you are part of a top-down military. This is a bottom-up situation. 
Explain that to us. It, it very much is. And by the way, the male predominance is really true in the global neo-jihad. It is not true for political violence in general. As a matter of fact, women were very prominent in SDS, the Weathermen, in the Badermeinhof Gang, in the Red Brigade, in ETA. I mean, the leadership actually in some of those organizations were women. So it's not that women are not inherently nonviolent. It's just that in this community that's violent, that is not their role. It's not the norms of this community, which actually prevents women from participating. Let me just ask you a quick question. You've been using the word neo-jihad. Explain that to our listeners. Yes. I'm trying to label this movement in a way that people will understand. It is global because they don't go after their own government. They go after the far enemy, namely the West. It's a movement that originated in the Middle East, so they, they actually target the West. And it is not jihad, according to mainstream Muslims, because jihad is a rule-bound phenomenon. You know, you can't really kill innocent, you can't kill women, you can, you know. And so Muslims don't consider it jihad. But if I don't use the word jihad, nobody will understand. So I basically cheat, I fudge, and I called it a neo-jihad. So let's get back to this idea of a kind of bottom-up organization of neo-jihad political violence. Right. So when states created a monopoly of legitimate violence within a country, within a territory, they instituted really top-down institutions like police, army, and so on. Here you don't really have this type of top-down structure, so the movement has to be created from the bottom up, and some organization that survive over time then sometimes create top-down organizations such as the IRA. And, you know, Al-Qaeda was a top-down organization. ISIS is very much a top-down organization. But the people actually want to join them, or in the imagination, they imagine themselves to be part of that community. They do it, their action on behalf of ISIS usually don't answer to the order of ISIS. They just sacrifice themselves on behalf of this organization, their contribution to that imagined community. That brings up a couple of questions. First of all, in the mind of people on the street, people reading the paper and say, this, was, this act of terrorism was perpetrated by somebody from ISIS, the leadership of ISIS has never heard of them. That's correct. Why do they do it? This is really part of an implication of what makes us human. We basically try to look at the social world and understand it, and we usually divide it into people like us and people who are not us, kind of us and them. So this is a political crime, and so the origin of this was there was some kind of grievance and it could be, you know, for instance, it could start students protesting the terrible food at the university. And so if they can't demonstrate for better food and the dean of the school called the police and the police beats up the student, well, the food now is irrelevant. It's a police beating. That's, so it becomes a political grievance now. Right. So the first step in this is really the acquisition of a political social identity. 
And the collection of all those people who imagine themselves to be part of this political protest community is this political protest. So it's an imagined community. It's a community where people always talk to each other. And eventually, or pretty quickly, it becomes a counterculture because they define themselves in contrast to usually the state. Because the state is the one that beat them up in the first place. But the political protest community itself is not a violent one. The first step, as I mentioned, it becomes violent on the three conditions. First, the escalation of conflict between this community and often the state. So today what we've had in the 1990s, after the first Gulf War, a few Muslims uh, started identifying with the victims, namely people in Iraq, who were starving. I mean, a lot of people died during the embargo of Iraq in the 1990s, and this really was the origin of 9-11, of the attack of 9-11. But still, very, very few young people were attracted to these ideas. What really kind of set them off was really the invasion of Iraq in 2003. We may not be conscious of it here, but it was extremely unpopular anywhere else in the world. In Britain itself, there were over 2 million people who protested against the run-up, the invasion of Iraq on February 15, 2003. The British very much felt that there was an escalation of conflict, and they saw people dying. They imagined themselves to be part of this community where the victims were being killed abroad. And this was the fertile ground for a few to volunteer to become soldiers to defend the community. But this escalation also has a verbal component. People, to conceptualize, to understand what's happening, they just use warlike metaphors. And if you start conceptualize something as a war, the only possible solution, uh, war attacks. It's not so much an extremist ideology, it's extremism of the speech that kind of narrows down people to the only solution is just an attack. You're saying that that kind of speech comes in response to actions like the invasion of Iraq in 2003? And also the speech of the U.S. government, right? you know, who vilify what they call terrorists, but who the terrorists think of themselves as freedom fighters. So you can see that very much... It's an escalation on both sides, not just one side. So that's the first condition. The second condition is a disillusionment with the effectiveness of protest. Most people are disillusioned, and they basically drop out. But a few people still think that the lack of effectiveness of their legitimate protest makes them think that maybe the government is not legitimate. So it delegitimizes the government because they're not listening to the people which is really what happened in Britain. The fact that the government lied to them (laughs) about Iraq on weapons of mass destruction. The third condition is a sense of moral outrage. It's this moral outrage that kind of drives a few, a very few people within that community to volunteer now to defend their attacked community. They see the bombing, the morally outrage, that I cannot stand by and do nothing. Enough is enough. Now I have to do something. And these people, I mean, ironically, as you write about and as you've talked about, many of them are engineers, engineering students. There are people who are married. There's one guy that identified with John Travolta. There's yes. people who are gay. There are people who are westernized in many ways. And 
those kinds of acts of violence, whether they be the invasion of Iraq in 2003 or drone attacks against civilians, that kind of thing. Now, the drone attacks really generated the two attacks that we had in 2009-2010 in this country, namely the subway plot and the Times Square bomber. The irony of this is that people who commit political violence do it for a reason. But once they commit the violence, the public completely ignores the reason. They only focus on the violence. And if you do try to understand, people can say, well, whose side are you on? So there is a strong pressure from your own in-group to really kind of rally to the in-group of just looking at the out-group enemy in one dimension as pure evil. And that speaks to what you said at the beginning of our conversation, which is when you have intelligence agencies who paint the world in sort of broad black and white brushstrokes of good and evil, even though these are the people who are trying to do the analysis, if you can't understand why people are doing things, how effective is your counterterrorism strategy going to be? Completely ineffective. You can throw as many people and as many resources unless you understand the problem. You're just throwing money away. You know, right now, our government is actually making things worse by completely vilifying the enemy. They don't really want to know. Now it's all Muslim. You have the Muslim ban. (laughs) And so, in a sense, by targeting a much wider population, you actually increase this political protest community who now feels like, gee, I'm, I'm being attacked. We have now more attacks both in Europe and we have a few here, but we have a very different Muslim community than the rest of Europe. Tell us about that. Well, basically, we don't have a Muslim community. We have many communities. In the United States. In the United States. We actually have, in a sense, an American Muslim community that was African-American and came from the Nation of Islam. But then you have the children of the immigrants. In the 60s and 70s and even 80s, we didn't really have this open system that Europe has. And so we only accepted the elite. We accepted physicians, we accepted engineers, we accepted university professors. So American Muslims are actually richer than the rest of the population in average. They're usually better educated and so on, because what you have are the children of an upper-class group. So it's very, very different from Europe, where you have pockets of poverty around large cities that we just don't have here. And as you've talked about, you have a welfare state in Europe that we don't have here. You've got people who are able to just barely get by, who are bored, who have a lot of time on their hands, who are disaffected with the society that they're living in, aren't really part of it, and who then find a sense of meaning Yes, so let's talk about France. The great irony of all of this is as French Muslim, I'm by far the best adapted and the best uh, integrated in French society. But within the larger French Muslim society, you have young people living in the banlieue, in the suburbs, around large cities that completely feel excluded. And they're excluded because they basically drop out of school and kind of they go into drug dealing. And since 1992-93, the French basically adapted our, we're going to be tough on drugs. And so they really kind of arrest and rearrest those young people who spend a lot of their time in prison. And they really don't feel part of the society. They're not Algerian. They don't really feel French. 
right. because the French don't really give them jobs and so on. So for a while they were just, you know, they called themselves the Burr, which was a slang term for Arab. <laughs> then people saw them as Maghrebin, North African from the Maghreb. And then around the mid-90s, they started looking at themselves as Muslim, the same people. Now, those young French people identify with Arabs. And so what started happening in Syria was extremely relevant and pertinent to them. And you had a wave of over 2,000 young French people who went to Syria in 2013 and 14. Because the first people who went there send on their Twitter account images of them basically living in five-bedroom villas when people escaped and fled the army of ISIS or Al-Qaeda and left their car. So a guy is driving a big SUV, lives in a nice villa with a swimming pool, and sends pictures there to his friends who live in poverty, six to a room in the banlieue of Paris. Well, that really looks attractive. And so that kind of uh, started this whole tsunami of young French people coming to Syria. Which isn't political ideology or moral outrage. No, this, this is this image of, well, we are somebody now. Yeah. And that's the thing. I mean, I think one thing that's so important to talk about is if you have people in a country, and the same thing could apply to African Americans in this country, what is your sense of identity? The way you're talking about people of Algerian origin in France who don't feel either Algerian or French, it is our human nature, whether we think about it all day or not, to belong to something that actually gives you a good sense of yourself and of something that you belong to for the greater good. And, and meaning to your life. Yeah. You know, you're, you're part of this group. And so a lot of young French men and women went there. The trouble really started around uh, late 2014 when Al-Qaeda and ISIS started fighting with each other. Now all those young kids from the banlieue were totally confused. They're not ideologically minded. They're people who dropped out of school. So they did not know what to do. And then in January of 2015, after finally the expansion of ISIS was stopped in Kobani, all those villas and so on were destroyed. <laughs> and the attraction was no longer there. So now you have a large wave going back home. And this is a real problem in Europe. What do you do with those people? Are they people disillusioned with fighting and wanting to go back to French society to reintegrate? Or are those ISIS soldiers? There is a profile, but unfortunately the profile is subjective. The profile is, I am a soldier defending my community. And when people come back and they feel like, well, I'm demobilized now, I can go back to civilian life. It's very hard to redistinguish those from those guys who come back as soldiers <laughs> intending right. to kill. What about in the United States? I mean, you examine, I think it's 66 neo-jihadist actions since 9-11. So since 9-11, 2001, and you go through 2011, there's many more in Europe. What is the actual, in your view, nature of the neo-jihadist terrorist threat in the United States, and what are the most appropriate counter-terrorism actions that, if our government were rational, it would do? Right. Well, first is you try to perhaps prevent politicized community from emerging, and that means, you know, you listen to the grievances. 
I mean, by listening to grievances, you actually give them respect, saying that the government is not legitimate, because basically just listening is, legitimizes the government. Just listen to the grievances. The second is don't allow this to escalate. You have to have a very disciplined force because, in a sense, the government has far more discipline than those kids. As I said, it's bottom-up, and they don't have any discipline. So the government has more responsibility because they can act much more than this imagined community. So the government, don't allow it to escalate. And especially, you don't allow egregious attacks on this imagined community. So bombing civilians in Syria will absolutely ensure that we're going to have terrorist incident in the United States. It's really that simple. It's kind of the reverse of what Secretary Rumsfeld was saying 15 years ago. We bombed them there so we don't have to kill them here. No, no. If you bomb them there, you'll have to deal with the problem here. You'll have a terrorist problem. So It's like a social physics. Absolutely. Absolutely. So now, once you have violence, what do you do? because I'm trying here, I've described preventing violence. Well, now the key is on the government to try to craft a sense of identity that surpasses those smaller conflicted identities of those groups. When you're talking about the government helping to craft an identity that is greater than the sort of like incipient potential terrorist identity, what would that look like? What does that look like? Is anybody doing that, doing it well? No, no. We're doing the exact opposite. So you say, look, we're all American. Anybody, Native Americans are Americans, African Americans are Americans, Muslims are Americans. No, what we're doing is Muslims are not Americans. And you know what? We're going to have a ban on Muslim immigration in this country or even a ban on Muslim coming to this country as visitors. So we're doing the exact opposite. In your conversations with intelligence communities, you are a former CIA officer in academic communities, in political communities, if you are, for example, addressing Congress, do you find an openness to your ideas? Because they really do run counter to the kind of rhetoric that we see in the media and out of the mouths of most politicians. Um, the reception of my ideas is mixed. For the politician, what I wrote early is very popular. What I'm writing now is terribly unpopular. I get a very good reception in academia because, in a sense, they are a little bit more neutral. And with the intel community, since they identify themselves as heroes, killing the bad guys by kind of saying, well, you know, you can't contribute to the violence by escalating. You know, this is not a popular message. What kind of a citizen movement would it take, or political movement, would it take to actually have a society that didn't basically escalate, have a government that is escalating terrorism, whether they think they're doing that or not? It seems that they are participants in it. Right. Well, I think the nature of American democracy, where you have people being elected because they're tough on crime, they're tough on drugs, and now they're tough on terrorism... (laughs) inherently builds in this escalation. So it's a little bit how we elect people that really rewards the people who escalate. And then you have this really unspoken conspiracy of all the intel agencies saying, oh no, we have a huge problem here. Whereas the numbers show that more people die of lightning strike than from terrorism. 
I think that we grew up evolutionary thinking in terms of people from our village, people from the next village, or our cave and next cave. And you see that what I'm describing as political violence is really kind of the extreme implication of this kind of division of two imagined groups. So what we need to do is really to understand that this is always a temptation of us human beings trying to kill other people. And we have to be eternally vigilant to not give in to this temptation because, you know, we've killed a lot of people throughout history. We're a very violent species. Well, and as you say, it worked for us in the history of our evolution, but right now it could lead to our annihilation. Very much so, very much so. And, you know, in a sense, we grew up too smart for our own good because now we've invented technology that actually could wipe us out. Mark Sageman is a forensic psychiatrist and political sociologist, former CIA officer, and we've been talking about his book, Misunderstanding Terrorism. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. It's my privilege. You've been listening to the Radio Cafe Science Edition. I'm your host, Mary Charlotte. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for the show, please email me at mc at radiocafe.media. Please check out our website at scienceradiocafe.org. We're on Twitter at Radio Cafe MC and at Facebook.com slash Radio Cafe. Many thanks to Steady Networks, providing managed IT solutions and computer support for thousands of people in Albuquerque and Santa Fe. You can find out more at SteadyNetworks.com. And they are part of Dotfoil Computer Services of Santa Fe, where I myself have been bringing my computer for many years, and they are awesome. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.